there's just this kind of cloud of stuff related to innovation around me that I think when I, I saw Clay and saw the discipline that he brought to a field that is often shrouded in mystery, that is really the heart of how organizations, uh, of how economies develop, you say, this is just really interesting. An early encounter with the father of disruptive innovation put Scott Anthony, Dartmouth 96, on a path to success for himself. But he credits the environment of innovation found in his childhood home as an even earlier inspiration for looking for opportunity wherever it appears. Find out how innovation in business and innovation in life often feel very similar on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Scott Anthony, and we are going to talk about tools that one can acquire over a lifetime to help predict personal and professional change. And Scott actually has some really great viewpoints on that. So welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Leslie, it's a true thrill to be here. Thank you very much. So I'm going to start this the way I start almost all of these podcasts and ask you, Scott, when we were in college, who did you think you were and who did you think you were going to become as we found our way toward graduation? Uh, it's, it's a great question. You know, as I think about how I self-identified when I was at Dartmouth, you know, the big activity that I did at Dartmouth was working on the newspaper, working on the Dartmouth. And, and I knew I didn't want to go into journalism. I knew I wasn't a journalist. But there was something about that investigating, learning, trying to solve problems that spoke a lot to who I was as an individual. So, you know, I, I, when I left Dartmouth, I was somebody who I would say who didn't know exactly who he was, exactly who he was going to be, who had some things he wanted to explore, some roads he wanted to travel and kind of wanted to see where it went, you know? Yeah. And um, actually, that's what some friends who've kept up with you said to me as they suggested that I reach out to you for this podcast because they said, you know, Scott Anthony always has something percolating. And so I'm sure that started with that investigative background. So when you were leaving, what was the first path, even if you knew that you were going to do many different things? Yeah. So, you know, I was an economics major at Dartmouth and economics majors that don't know what they want to do in life generally apply to two types of jobs, consulting companies and investment banks. And I did pretty well at the interviews for the consulting companies, not so well for the investment banks and ended up working at McKinsey and Company in their Washington, D.C. office. And it was pretty happenstance that I ended up in D.C. And this kind of is a recurring theme in my life, that there's just something that's kind of semi-random that I follow that just ends up in interesting places, which I count myself very fortunate around. But, you know, for McKinsey, they said, write down three offices that you might want to go to. And I wrote down Boston, New York, and I, I couldn't think of a third one. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I didn't really actually want to go back home, but I said, all right, D.C., I know that area. And I wrote it down, and that's the office I ended up being at. And the reason why it ended up being important is in the Washington, D.C. office of McKinsey, they have a think tank called the McKinsey Global Institute. And it turns out if you have an economics background and you went to work in that office, you had the opportunity to spend a year working overseas and doing research into a country and its economic strategy, which is what I ended up doing my second year at McKinsey. I spent a year in the UK working with the UK government to look at growth, employment and productivity, which is not at all what I thought I was going to be doing when I left Dartmouth. But it was a really interesting opportunity. Yeah. And so going through the ranks of McKinsey, I mean, you get a lot of different kinds of opportunities, that one, of course. And typically, those roles also lead you to business school, which I know you did. Um, so tell me about that path, too. 
Yeah, so the the when I was at McKinsey, the business analyst program that I was in was a, a pretty firm two-year program. So it was designed, so you spend a couple years working at McKinsey, then you might do a kind of gap year and then go to business school and then theoretically go back. I, I decided after my two-year program was up, I was going to dip my toe in the startup water and went to work at a startup in the Washington, D.C. area called World Space which ended up blowing through about a billion dollars. It was trying to launch satellites to provide media services over the emerging markets of Africa, Asia, and South America. Very interesting organization. Many stories could be told. But uh, as soon as I got there and I realized how crazy the organization was, I started applying to business school and ended up getting into the Harvard Business School and went there in the fall of 1999. And that that might feel cliche to say, and that was life-changing. But in this case, it really was life-changing because of who you encountered. So tell us about that. No, exactly. So I, I kind of view my life as having three kind of big inflection points. And, you know, the first was the moment I wrote down Washington, D.C. for McKinsey, and that then led me to the U.K. In the U.K., I met my wife. So that was a, a pretty big deal. Then the second moment was the, the fall of my second year at Harvard Business School, where I took the first version of a class that had been created by a professor who had written a book a few years earlier called The Innovator's Dilemma, The professor's name was Clayton Christensen, who, if you're in the business world, is a really big name today. But back in 2000, it was still kind of a fringe name, well-known in some circles, but not known at all in others. And I remember very distinctly back in the fall of 2000, going into the classroom and within about 20 minutes, just intellectually falling in love with the things that Christensen was working on. And I remember too, then kind of the the click moment where it really, really stuck in my head. The end of October 2000, I was flying out to Phoenix. I remember it distinctly because I was going to meet classmate Chris Cow. We're going to go see the Pearl Jam concert in Phoenix. And I brought along with The Innovator's Dilemma, which is the book that Christensen had written. It's a plane ride book. So I read it on the plane ride out to Phoenix, and that was it. It it just all clicked together. And I said, I just want to learn more from this person. I want to learn more about these ideas. And that then led to a whole series of things that have resulted in where I am today. Yeah, well, tell us, because it really took you quite literally around the world um, and kind of doing things, which I think that first step, that first third of your life or whatever, that first inflection point really wouldn't have presaged the fact that you were going to do this kind of work um, for as long as you have. So tell us kind of about that, how Christensen and, and all of that really kind of gave you a new trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. And if you went back and and told the 25-year-old version of me back in 2000 that we'd be having this conversation, that I'd be where I am and I had done the things that I've done, I'd say that you were crazy. I just, you know, I didn't see it coming, but that's life. So here's the the general path from there to here. So after the class ended, this is now December of 2000, I said, I just, I want to learn more. So I had the opportunity to do an independent study with Clay in the second term of my second year of the business school. I didn't know what I wanted to do after graduation. Somewhere along the way, Clay said, you know, I've got a little bit of funding to hire a researcher. It's not as much as you would make if you're out in the regular market, but I I promise it'll be an interesting opportunity. And I said, why not? You know, I knew I didn't want to go back to McKinsey. McKinsey's a great place. Alex had like classmate, good friend is still there. And Mm -hmm. it's a fantastic organization. 
but it just wasn't for me. It was just too big for me. So I knew I didn't want to do that. I had some other options after graduation, but none of them really spoke to me. So I said, why not? And I, I must have been the lowest paid graduate of my class, you know, making a researcher salary. But, you know, I, we were young. We didn't have, I wasn't married at the time. We didn't have kids, no mortgage, et cetera. So I figured a, a pretty good time to go and do something a little bit off the beaten path. Anyway, that it was supposed to be a one-year thing. It ended up being two. Clay and I wrote a book together called Seeing What's Next, which came out in 2004. Clay had co-founded a company with Mark Johnson back in 2000 called Innosite to help people utilize the things emerging from his research. In 2003, while I was still kind of working on the book on the side, I decided to join the very small team at Innosite. There's just a, a few people there at the time. And the rest, as they say, is history. 2003 to 2010, I helped build up the team in the United States. 2010, I moved within a site out to Singapore. And 10 years later, seven books later, eight books in total, here we are. Yeah. And so when you, you had these two disparate experiences with startups, right? You had the kind of crazy 90s startup life. Uh, and saw the writing on the wall really quickly. I mean, burn rate aside, like there were other things that weren't going to go for that company. But then you were really intrinsically like a part of this other one. How how do you look at those two experiences and say, oh, thank goodness? Or, you know, how are they different? Like what how do you how do you put those two things together? And what were the things that you learned from the first one that you could bring into the second experience? Well, the first one, there's so many stories I could tell. Let me just tell you one. So you know, I, I joined WorldSpace in August of 1998. And within a week of joining WorldSpace, it had made the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And usually that's good, right? You, you want a startup company to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, except in this circumstance. So the U.S. had just fired missiles that had blown up a chemical factory in the Sudan that was owned by somebody who had alleged ties to this terrorist known as Osama bin Laden. And the article then went on to say that that person who owned the factory also was an investor in WorldSpace. And there was rumors, I then learned, that WorldSpace was building a private terrorist communication network and the CIA was watching it, blah, 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 blah. So that's when I decided that maybe applying to business school would be a good thing to do at that point. So, you know, it was a, it was a, a little was, different. Yeah, I mean, there, there, it was, there was a real business there as well. So, you know, I mean, it, 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 there were some shady parts of it, but there also were some legitimately good things that were happening, and that's a different story. But, you know, the, the fundamental difference between joining something, uh, not quite at day one, but close to day one, versus when I joined WorldSpace, where it already had an international presence, it already had raised a billion dollars, there was already an infrastructure in place, it just it's so foundationally different. You know, in, in a site when I joined, you know, it had existed for a few years. It had gone through already a couple near-death moments. The first version of the business was a very different business than what we ultimately built and scaled. But it kind of staggered and made it through that. But it was at that stage, at that stage, where you really could make it into anything you wanted to make it. Versus world space where, you know, there had been money raised, there was a business, there was a business model. And, of course, you could influence it, but you couldn't shape it. And to me, at least, the opportunity to truly shape something and help to turn it into something that then would go on and have a really good couple decade run and go and build up a team of great people around the globe is just an intensely rewarding experience. And an interesting one, too, you know, we, we reflected in a site, the people who helped get it off the ground, me, Mark Johnson, who was the, there day one, the co-founder, Matt Eyring, who was an early person, Clark Gilbert, who was an external advisor. None of us were friends at the early stages of this journey. We were all drawn to Clay and all drawn to Clay's mm -hmm. ideas. 
And it's just interesting how it imprints in an organization. You know, one of the things that people say about Insight now is it's, you know, it's a very intellectual organization. It, it almost functions like a, a university at times. You know, we're a consulting company. We provide advice. We go and have clients and we do real work and all that. But that idea that you have a group of people who are brought together by an idea really imprints in the organization. But, you know, it was uh, just a, a very different experience to be there in the really early days versus when the foundation had already been built. And you know, both rewarding, but I, I found the, the shaping opportunity just a, a much more stimulating one. Yeah. And then you continued to shape it, right? Because you helped it become international and have like basically lived that world for it. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I should note that it's always always good to have requisite humility. I mean, the, the Singapore office, I didn't open it. Yeah, I didn't found an aside. I didn't open the Singapore office. I've learned I'm not really the day zero person. Uh, I'm kind of the day two person. You know, day, day zero, somebody has the idea. Day one, they start to do things. Then day two, they say, okay, now what are we going to do? And I'm really good on day two. I'm really good at saying, okay, we're, we're 80% there or 60% there. Let's go and figure out what the next 20 or 40% is going to be. So in the case of Singapore, we had actually opened an office in Singapore in 2005, which was pretty crazy. It was at the time we were like a dozen people. And opening an office 8,000 miles away is pretty nonsensical, but there's a backstory. We did it. That office went through some twists and turns and ultimately became something that was not doing what we were doing in the U.S. In the U.S., we were doing consulting services, advisory services. In Singapore, we had a sister company called Inosite Ventures, which invested in startups and incubated companies. In the beginning of 2009, the guy who was running it, a guy named Brad Gamble, said that he had this kind of once-in-a-lifetime job opportunity to go head strategy for LG in Korea, so he was going to leave. What did we want to do with the business? At the time, we had two young kids. Our, our kids were going to be later that year, two and four. And my wife and I said, why not? You know, we, we've never lived in Asia before. You know, my wife had spent 10 years as an expat moving from the UK to the US. Uh, we thought it'd just be an interesting opportunity. It took a few months to get everything set up, but 2010, we picked up the family and moved out here. We ultimately ended up winding down the ventures business, the incubator and the investment arm, and then opening up a consulting presence out here, which now has a, about a dozen people that do advisory work throughout the region. And it's been, again, um, something I wouldn't have anticipated. I, I thought it'd be two or three years and back, and it's now been 10 years. And the two kids have turned into four kids, not because we've cloned them, but because we've, we've had two more. And it's just been, a, a again, a kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get to work in Korea and Japan and the Philippines and China and India and Australia and, of course, Singapore and Indonesia and Thailand and on and on and on. And you, you again, wind back and go to the 25-year-old Scott, you know, most of my family just they're they're not big international travelers you know I, I think some of my siblings don't have passports so you know to end up with this international life is just not something I would have anticipated but uh, there you go yeah yeah so after innovators dilemma and you really got steeped in that world like I think the subtitle of your book um, with clay is what is it um, using innovation to predict personal and industry change or maybe just industry change but how do you, how can you map that onto your life? Like where, where's, where were those seeds of innovation that you can say kind of, uh, what do you call it? Reverse engineering that said this, if, if I could have predicted it, I should have been able to given these one or two things. Yeah. You know, Steve, Steve Jobs said you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And of course you look backwards and you say, well, it was predestined. Of course I was going right, to end up picking right. 
you know, I, I look at, at my own arc and I look at, at how I grew up, that innovation was always around my family. You know, my, my family was just always a, a family that would tinker with things. You know, we had computers from a very young age. I remember our TRS-80, our Atari 2600, our Commodore 64, et cetera, et cetera. And my grandfather was uh, not a technophobe at all. You know, my grandfather was a business school professor for 40 years, very well known in this field. Uh, he was an accounting professor, and he had this book called Essentials of Accounting, which is kind of the gold standard 101 book of accounting for decades. And he introduced a computerized version of it in the early 1980s. It was one of my probably least favorite birthday presents when he, he gave me a computerized version of Essentials of Accounting when I was seven. But, you know, it, it's a family that would tinker and try things. My mother, in the late 80s, early 1990s, built this network of what was called bulletin boards that were connected by dial-up modems where people would send messages to each other. And in another world, she became Steve Case, and she had created AOL. In this world, it didn't happen, but you know, that, that happens. But there were all these moments where people were trying things. My sister took a PhD that she got in language acquisition from Berkeley and turned it into a small business trying to help parents teach sign language to their kids, to help them mm -hmm. learn language acquisition earlier. You know, so again, there's just this kind of cloud of stuff related to innovation around me that I think when I, I saw Clay, and saw the discipline that he brought to a field that is often shrouded in mystery, that is really the heart of how organizations, uh, of how economies develop. You say, this is just really interesting. You know, so you take the kind of investigatory work that I, I did as a journalist, you take the just strategic thinking that I did in my first consulting assignments at McKinsey, you take the startup experience of world space, you take a little bit of the innovation juju or whatever from, from my life, it, it kind of looking backwards, you can say it all kind of perfectly came together. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. And it does really sound like particularly where you are and with your big family and all of that, like, this is really where you're supposed to be right now. So it's hard to kind of use all of that innovation and consulting knowledge that you have to, to do the further piece. But, you know, what is next or potentially next for you and your family um, going forward? You know, what, one of the things that is the opportunity and frustration of our field, you know, Clay's first book was called The Innovator's Dilemma. And the original subtitle is When New Technologies Cause Great Firms to Fail. And his observation was an industry after industry, very well run, very smart incumbents would fail when there was some disruptive change to their industry. So, you know, you, you can think of everything from people from you know, the big box retailers losing to Amazon.com to people like Digital Equipment Corporation losing to personal computers and on and on and on. So, you know, it's kind of a, a tale of woe and sadness about great companies failing. And, you know, our quest has been to empower forward-thinking organizations to navigate that disruptive change in, in the future and turn those dilemmas of disruption into an opportunity. And we've been poking at the problem for 20 years now, and we have really good understanding of what you do at a product market level. We have good understanding about how an organization sets a strategy through uncertainty. We have good understanding of how you build capabilities to do it. We have good understanding about how you create a culture that enables it. The question that we have not answered and it is, in my mind, the question is, how does a leader, how does a leadership team actually build the capacities to spot and respond to disruptive change? And it is incredibly hard because it is not a technical problem. As you know, a, a good, smart, technical person can analyze, can spot. It is an adaptive challenge where you have to unlearn a lot. You have to let go of a lot. You have to dwell in the unconscious, blah, blah, blah. blah. There's a, a lot of complex things there. 
So about 18 months ago, I entered into an executive master's program at the INSEAD campus here in Singapore called Executive Master in Change, which teaches you how to take a system psychodynamic lens to individual and institutional change. It's a very different sort of thing. You know, it's much more essentially putting an organization and its leadership on the proverbial couch, trying to diagnose them, trying to understand what they can do to do things differently. And it has been personally transformative. I don't have the answer yet. It's too complex a problem to even suppose you ever can have an answer. But the questions have become sharper. So at least on the professional side, the idea of completing the picture and helping organizations with the strategy, with the culture, with the structures, and with the leadership to really transform themselves, that's where my energy is focused right now. Whether we ever solve the problem, I don't know. But I, I think we continue to advance against it, and that's good. And then on, on the personal side, well, my, my oldest son's about to turn 15. When he turns 16 and a half in Singapore, given our status here, the government starts watching him very carefully because when he turns 18, he's eligible for two years of military service here. And well, that'll be an interesting new chapter. We'll see how all of that unfolds. Yeah, I'm not. I'm sure that you will not be the sole decider in that, and so leadership may actually play a role in that as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we we have uh, three boys and one girl, and you know, we became permanent residents out here, which is the the status. It's kind of like a U.S. green card in 2017. The dirty little secret about Singapore is permanent residency is actually not permanent. It's a five-year grant. So 2022, when Charlie, our oldest, turns 17, isn't it magical how all those numbers add up? Mm -hmm. uh, we are up again for another five-year grant. And we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it sounds like at that point and before and after, you will have lots of opportunity because your insights are going to be quite uh, needed in lots of different sectors and lots, lots of different places. So that's really exciting. I really appreciate your time with us today and um, I wish you and your family well. Thanks, Leslie. I very much enjoyed the conversation. That was Scott Anthony, author and senior partner at growth strategy consulting firm InnoSight. He's written extensively about a number of innovation topics, including disruptive innovation and business transformation, and is now studying yes and behaviors, as opposed to either or strategies, that predict stellar leadership. Find Scott at InnoSight, that's I-N-N-O-S-I-G-H-T dot com, and find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, at RoadsTakenShow.com or on the next episode of Roads Taken. Roads Taken.